You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, so today we are at M Pavilion. Uh, this is the 86th Writing and Concept talk, and we have Sally Olds and Matariki Kotare Sezo. I went all the way. We'll engage us with a talk entitled Club Theory 2.0. Um, I could introduce you with your long bios. Do you want that? No. No, no, no it's really, no, 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 no. So I'm going to hand over to you guys. Okay, hi. Yeah, I'm Sarah Scott. Thanks for the intro, Fionn. Thanks, Future Tense, and um, whoever is in charge of M Pavilion. Nice pavilion. Um, it is. Pavilion, nice. Glorified pagoda. Um, hi, I'm Sarah. Sarah Scott, um, also Cezo, uh, or Cezo Snot, or Kotare, or Matariki. Um, I'm a DJ, and sometimes I write, and I have a philosophy background in evolutionary psychology. Um, it's a, there's a lot of identity going on, um, you know, names and titles. Um, I think it's really interesting about names. None of us actually has a name, naturally. Uh, essentially, we are unnamed. We don't own a name. And the fact that many of us have a name that is owned by other people, particularly if your name is Sally or Sarah, uh, is something you'll be very aware of. And yet, in a way, uh, names are a bit like clothes. Uh, they're something we carry around with us so much and so frequently, it's as though they take on the function of something natural, even though they're perfectly cultural and artificial in some way. Uh, so what I want to talk about today is not identity so much in the way, you know, you hear it all the time. I'm not going to talk about that, the social media way that they set it up. Uh, but more in a sense, well, less about cultural politics, uh, you know, trans and queer identities, uh, fusion confusion and so on. Uh, but I guess I want to talk about the cult of identity in itself as a conceptual sense of self uh, in a really general sense and why it's probably worth putting some distance between us and that cult of identity. Sounds really abstract now, but don't worry, we've got a really long one hour ahead. Um, you haven't seen anything yet. Um, and so I want to talk about why there are things more important than identity. And in particular, I want to talk about the notion of being. Also, I have notes, because it's not a TED talk. Like, I didn't practice this at home. Um, so yeah, I want to talk about the notion of being rather than identity. Because if you think about it, most identity is quite superficial in some ways. So whether it's a name or many names or a title. And you can think about this from a philosophical point of view. Um, so technically, really, identity is just that which enables us to be identified. Um, it's like our ident, like I hyphen dent, like almost a permanent like dent or idiosyncrasy that picks you out. And for that uh, to happen, we have to have sort of, we sort of have to be consistently identifiable over time. Um, so Kant, the philosopher, uh, the German philosopher, Kant, uh, Kant, uh, he talks about this, uh, that identity is really just a function of being identified over time. So um, those of you that have a personal relationship, uh, yeah, I don't know why you would, but like, <laughs> 
your partner, your partner is identifiable to you insofar as they do more or less the same things, uh, wear more or less the same clothes, uh, say they give what? Uh, they give out, they do, and it's like the same person all the time. Uh, they give out more or less the same opinions at the same height. You know, there's really reliable, yeah, sets of indicators. This is the same person that you're waking up next to, like maybe all, every single day. Um, and so identity is, in a sense, a function of identification. So, of course, there's a lot of contestation about that. Um, if you've done, like, Intro to Philosophy 101, they just, like, hammer it in the nature of reality. Like, what is identity? John Locke, and it's like, I don't care anymore. Like, I don't... I'm just formless. Um, so I think there's something um, that precedes identity, uh, literally precedes identity, uh, because when you think about young babies... Not only uh, do they not officially have names until they're named, but they're sort of identified in a kind of profounder way. And in a certain sense, we all remain in this state throughout our life. <laughs> and this is a sense of being. So being precedes identity. Um, that sounds really iconic, so don't quote me because it's really embarrassing. Um, but really what I mean by that, uh, being precedes identity. Uh, it seems like existence precedes essence, like I guess a little bit Simone de Beauvoir. Um, but those of you who are taken up in another fad of the times, mindfulness, like I'm all sure we've trialled the Headspace app before the paid subscription kicks in. Um, you know, mindfulness is, uh, they place a lot of emphasis on clearing the mind of thoughts. So you're like, ah. Oh. I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking. Okay, so mindfulness is sort of a misnomer in that sense uh, because you're trying to put the thoughts on the back burner and allow whatever might be there. So either like you have a mantra um, or, you know, the breathing, I was talking about breathing, to be the centre of your focus. Uh, and when you do that, the state that you're in, uh, whether in meditation, though I want to be clear, you don't have to be in meditation to be in this being present state. Like you could be Roger Federer um, playing tennis who's like completely immersed in the ball and at that point his identity probably doesn't exist. Um, or you can be a clubber lost in the crowd. Um, you know, you came in with an identity, but surely like when you're dancing and you're immersed, there's, you know, something that's lost there. You're, you're one with the chorus and really Nietzschean kind of... Um, sorry about all these references, but like you seem like this left liberal intellectual crowd and I think you know what I mean. Um, so it's possible that some of you... Uh, have exposure to uh, Buddhist practice as well. So, of course, there's this notion of identity and self-concepts or concepts or thought. I'm just going to lump them all in there together because it's like that general kind of mind uh, entity. So, in general, it's entirely secondary. Uh, and it doesn't matter at all how you might be identified. Um, so, the Buddha asked where thoughts... He was asked where thoughts come from. Uh, I'm going to tell you what he said and then I'm going to answer it because he didn't. <laughs> uh, so somebody asked him a question like that and he gave a parable. They were like, oh, where do thoughts come from? What are thoughts? Because in Buddhism, you're constantly talking about like the ego and thoughts versus like this presence and being. So he gave a parable uh, and he said, you've got somebody and they, they shot you with an arrow. You're like, oh. And you've got an arrow stuck in your body. Uh, so you're there and you're like in pain. You've got the arrow in your body. And before you remove it, uh, you're trying to find out. So you've got this arrow and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm dying. And before you remove it, you're like, where did this arrow come from? Uh, I need, before I remove it, I need to know who shot it and why and where it came from. Let's examine this in more detail. Uh, and that was his answer. And he was, what he was saying was that our main concern should be to remove the arrow instead of trying to figure out where it all started, how did it all start and where did it all originate? 
And so his teaching was very practical, totally practical. Not all of Buddhism is that practical anymore. <laughs> Some of it remains practical compared to other traditions. But in the beginning of Buddhist tradition, uh, I think it was totally practical. It was just like remove the arrow. Uh, and the arrow, of course, stands for suffering, uh, any form of suffering that's self-generated through the mind. Uh, okay, so that was his answer. Now, of course, I agree with that. I'm sure we all do. Um, but going a little bit beyond it, uh, there's such a thing as the collective mind. And so many thoughts are not your thoughts, really. They arrive in the collective mind. So they're like energy fields uh, and energetic entities. And you can ask any scientist, if he doesn't have an ego, he will admit that nobody actually knows what thoughts are. They don't. Like, you know, these studies have this, like, chemical analysis, but no one can really, like, capture, like, the essence of what makes that chemically different from anything else in the brain. Um, yeah, and so you have these little entities, these are what thoughts are, and they float around, and they're sort of like little fairies. Um, and so that, that's not literally true, like I haven't seen any fairies, but they are like little fairies, and the, you've got thought forms floating around. And if the thought form uh, discovers any resonance with anything inside you, uh, for example, any form of negativity, like you're on the 19 tram, it's like really hot, and, and then there's like a thought form in the collective mind, uh, probably on Twitter. Yeah, you're like, oh, and you're like on this tram. And when you're like looking at some social activist Insta story and there's like an even, even like heavier thought form floating around. And so you can even just like have this slight irritation. It doesn't have to be like this like oppressive environment. It's like, you know, it's just somebody someone said today and you're like, oh, but like, and then there's another thought form there, so you're in this energy, and it like resonates with that negativity, and then you know the thought fairy comes and like smacks you in the head, and you're just like, oh my god! And before you know it, the irritation has become something bigger. You're like, yeah. Um. <laughs> and that's how it works. And so you like you connect with the universal mind, and it flows through you. Um, so, yeah, when you deal with your, like, so-called own mind, uh, which is far more than your own mind, um, whatever awareness arises in you is not just your benefit. It's not just for your benefit. So your awareness, you're trying to just be. Um, it impacts the totality of the collective mind. And so when you have awareness in your being, um, so to be is just to be aware, it means awareness is arising in the collective mind of humanity. So it's not just personal. I mean, logically, if, yeah. Um, so in the same way, possession of any thinking that takes place in your mind, it's not really personal. None of, yeah, none of this is personal. This, like, belongs to everyone. <clears throat> um, so in the same way, uh, yeah, it's a collective human mind. And, of course, any emotion generated by that is, um, uh, it looks like my emotion. Uh, either it's anger or it's sadness or it's jealousy. <laughs> Or whatever, it's basically the same in everybody when it arises. Um, so like when I see a poster without my name on it, I'm like, oh my, <laughs> it doesn't belong to me, it's just the collective, yeah. Um, so it attaches itself to slightly different stories in the mind of why I'm angry, but the anger is anger, it's just human anger. Uh, so it's not yours, uh, you pick it up and then it gets a hold of you. And many humans live virtually with a mind that has taken possession of them. Possession of them. Uh, it pretends to be them. Uh, then they're stuck with it, 
without even knowing it. And if they knew it, it would be the beginning of freedom, <laughs> of being a human being. It's true. And they, they don't know it because if you tell, I've done it, like if you tell them uh, and then they, they get really angry. So you can't tell someone who's, yeah, they're in it. And then you're like, no, it's not you. It's like, they're like, no, it's the thing. And yeah, but they, yeah, they don't, because the mind is trying to protect itself. It feels threatened. <laughs> um, so there's still humans that won't hear, hear it. They can't hear it uh, because immediately they feel threatened by it uh, because they're totally possessed by the mind. Uh, you can see, you can see how, for example, certain collective thought forms can take possession of an entire country, uh, such as, yeah, for example, during Soviet communism in Russia, no offense to communists next to me, like Maoism in China, Millions of people all thinking the same thing. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but even in our, it's true, even, even in our society, it's not necessarily, our society, um, it's not necessarily one like monolithic thought like communism, um, such as that. Like there are little, like heaps of different thought forms on social media, especially that become perpetuated. And uh, without knowing it, they're often our most basic moral <laughs> assumptions. And we, and, you know, really basic assumptions of like how you interpret the universe and the world around you and everyone, everyone else and our basic assumption, uh, our basic assumptions and our thought forms that come out of the collective have taken, like, they've like possessed you. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, they're all forms that consciousness takes in the mind. Uh, and that's all fine in itself. Yeah, so it's not that bad. You just have to have awareness. Um, and if thought is all there is, it becomes destructive and insane. I've been there. Like, and without awareness, of course, um, yeah, your next question is probably like, but why? <laughs> why did it all start? Where did it all come from? Um, and that's just like the arrow again. Um, but these thoughts don't matter. Um, they don't matter. <laughs> Uh, all the questions, because what does matter is almost something closer to an animal state, uh, because in our animal state, we're simply breathing and being. Um, and it's hard for us in the West, in particular, to reconcile ourselves with the idea that a human being uh, can just be a being and not a thinking being, uh, or a thinking being without an identity. And you're just like, Oy. and yeah, it's certainly been the case since Descartes, uh, the philosopher, the French philosopher Descartes. Who, Who are you talking about? Have um, you heard, heard of him? And since this notion of uh, I think, therefore I am, um, yeah. So Descartes was like sitting in his armchair and like smoking a pipe and, you know, it's in the first meditations and he's just like, oh, and he comes to this conclusion, if I'm a thinking thing, then yeah, I, I exist and I think I exist, therefore, yeah, I think, therefore I am. If he'd waited a little longer, <laughs> he might have noticed that he still exists after that thought and... <laughs> There's space between thoughts and you still exist. Uh, so even if he momentarily wasn't thinking, he was still existing. Uh, and that has led to a huge prejudice uh, in Western thought that being and thinking go together all the time, all the time, all the time. And certainly one thing we do more than anything else these days is seem to think about our identity. Uh, 
But there was a time when that wasn't the case. Even in the Western tradition, uh, there was a possibility for being without thinking, which is really nice. And indeed, being without identity. Uh, and that being without thinking or that being without identity is not actually a subhuman state at all. So, for example, when we're asleep or when we're thinking about nothing in particular, uh, we're not any less human because we don't have thoughts or because we don't identify with something that we aren't, you know, or we aren't stating our identity in some fashion. <laughs> um, so being is the thing we carry around with us all the time, regardless of the accretions you may lay on top of it. Uh, and that's a state that enables you to open out to other forms of knowing and other forms of contact with people that aren't defined by identity. Now I hand it over to Sally. <laughs> hey, I'm Sally Olds. Um, I'm also Sal, sometimes oldie to my Queensland friends. <laughs> um, I'm a writer, not a DJ. <laughs> Communist. <laughs> Sorry for adding you a little bit. You know, we wrote a lot of this together and then went away and wrote stuff separately, the sub, and when we were together earlier in the day, the communist bit wasn't in there. But <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm a writer, not a DJ, although as a friend recently remarked, poets are the new DJs. <laughs> they have a similar level of hype in the cultural imaginary right now. <laughs> and for whatever reason, there has been a DJification of writing. An attempt to give the nerdy, <laughs> um, an attempt to give the nerdy, largely invisible labor of writing the aura and immediacy of DJing, to share in the music and art world's hype and money, exemplified in vibey art adjacent literary events, much like the one tonight. <laughs> thanks for having us, by the way. Yeah, thanks. Um, but I'm not a poet either. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about how you can be a writer without buying into the self-branding project of the literary world. On the one hand, it's easy. You just stay off the gram and write. On the other hand, it means you don't publish very often and have to ride your DJ friend's coattails into the limelight instead. <laughs> she needs me. That's true. I mostly write essays, which many essayists now and throughout the essay's 450-ish year old history have claimed as an undervalued form, an underdog form. I'm not sure that this claim holds up anymore if it ever did in the age of the viral personal essay the long-form hot take, the endless and demoralizing march of writers and ideas festivals and panels and in-conversations in the age of auto-theory memoir, auto-fiction, Claudia Rankine, Maggie Nelson, Hilton Owls, Chris Krause, Eileen Miles, etc., etc., in the age of the Medium post, the captioned Instagram post, the Facebook rant post, the screenshot of your notes app post. It might be the case that the personal essay is undergoing a kind of DJification too. Of course, in proportion to its popularity, there has also been a backlash. Uh, it's often seen as a narcissistic form at a time when we need more than ever unity, collectivity, and togetherness. So, for instance, two years ago, Gia Tolentino announced that there would be no more lost tampon essays in the age of Donald Trump, <laughs> meaning no more navel-gazing personal essays when there were bigger, more important things at stake. And in 2015, the critic Walter Ben Michaels even compared the memoir to Margaret Thatcher and her famous statement, there's no such thing as society, only individuals and their families. Uh, he goes on to say that no literary theorist could better describe the fundamental commitment of the memoir. <laughs> Which I think is cool. <laughs> um, meanwhile, clubbing is celebrated for the opposite reasons. It's seen as a communal form. The whole point of clubbing is to lose the boundaries of the self. And you see this discourse again and again throughout the history of clubbing. Uh, it values community and togetherness 
uh, togetherness that's hard to experience outside of the club in such intensity, especially for atomized Western city dwellers such as myself. Uh, an example, Stephen Pham writes, strangers moved in sync with me as if a wire were tethered to the beat and threaded through our limbs. It was a visceral sense of belonging. Uh, Sazo mentioned that even in the West, the concept of identity has undergone massive changes over time. Um, so if identity is consistency over time, then identity doesn't even have a stable identity. The same goes for the individual. Tonight, I want to talk about how the essay, ever since its not-so-humble beginnings, has helped to construct, and both construct and undo, but tonight I'm only going to talk about constructing. Uh, I don't have time to do both, um, and it's better for my argument. <laughs> um, <laughs> How, I'm going to talk about how the essay has helped to construct the concept of the individual. I'm going to spend the first half of this talk doing the nerdy writerly thing and talk about the origins of the essay before turning to the club and the relationship between the essay and the club. DJification is not a real word. <laughs> it's not something I want to coin. I haven't even Googled it to see if I got there first. This talk is not going to advance a theory of the DJ, especially as I'm not one. I'm more interested in what it means to coin something. To coin something, I think, is to produce a kind of conceptual economy from multiplicity. In academia and in the arts and probably everywhere, there is a rush to coin phrases or areas of study, to improve upon, to carve out a niche of a niche of a niche, to claim some territory, have a small and plant a flag in the ground with your name on it. Um, look at how Normcore worked. It started in a jokey trend report and seeped so fully into the culture that it's now in everyday use. Uh, its coiners, the trend forecasting group K-Hole, have consulted for MTV and Kickstarter. Most of the members have gone on to bigger and more lucrative pursuits. So to coin something can bring literal coin. Um, the word, and the word coin comes from around the 13th century, where it meant wedge, after the die that would stamp the metal. And then it gradually started to refer to the metal stamped instead. So coin refers to the identifying marks on the coin, the indent, the brand. I don't really want to draw some loose analogy between money and identity, the monetization of identity, although there is a lot to unpack there, <laughs> as we say in the business. Um, with regards to data mining, surveillance online, institutions like police and prisons that impose on us the crudest kinds of identifications, and the fact that one of the very first people to use the pronoun I in a truly modern way was filthy rich. That, as the essayist Eleanor Savage once tweeted, the lyric essay is a class position. And I'd add to this that the essay itself was or is a class position. So the filthy rich person that I'm talking about and the coiner of the term essay is, of course, Michel de Montaigne. Uh, Montaigne was born in a chateau called Chateau Montaigne <laughs> in 1533. <laughs> um, he was a counselor to the king, a lawyer, later a mayor, and in 1571, he retired to the tower of the family castle. Same. And... <laughs> began rereading his library, though he left the tower frequently for travel and work. It's hard to imagine now, but when he started writing, he was writing in a context that had a very different relationship to individuality and the collective. In fact, that division would not have made much sense to someone living when and where he did. He was writing and reacting against and within the tradition of scholastic realism. And full disclaimer, it's not a school I'm hugely across. I know there are philosophers next to me and in the audience who can probably help me out with it. Um, but basically, it's kind of the opposite to how we would think of realism now. It was a system of thought that saw abstractions and universals as the true reality. So things outside of time and place um, were seen as the true reality. During the Renaissance, um, and bear with me here, um, I'm literally just going to talk about <laughs> medieval literary history for a little while. <laughs> you thought that you were going to talk about the club, but no. <laughs> 
so yeah, during the Renaissance, the meaning of realism begins to change. It started to mean that particular objects accessed through the senses, things bound to a time and place, were the true realities. And in both philosophy and literature, individual experience begins to replace collective tradition as the measure of reality. And that's a, obviously a huge simplification. Um, and there are countercurrents running all through it. Um, but it might be easiest to see this through an example. So let's look at the modern novel. Um, previously, in the Middle Ages and earlier, narratives tended to be taken from mythology and history. There were a certain number of sort of stock narratives that you could use. Um, characters represented archetypes rather than living, breathing individuals. And you see that in the sort of tradition of naming characters in like quite unrealistic ways. So, uh, I don't know, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but so, you know, someone called Mr. Miser, um, who would be a miser. And they weren't meant to like seem like real people. Um, where was I? Um, yeah, and uh, on top of that, time and place often remained vague. So you can contrast this with, for instance, uh, Karl Nausgaard's six-volume autofiction, My Struggle, um, which chronicles his, uh, the author's daily life in painstaking detail. He wrote it, uh, it was published from 2009 to 2011. And in this uh, massive work, the individual moves through space and time in incredibly granular detail. So Montaigne's es essays break from this tradition of um, medieval realism or scholastic realism. Even the idea of a continuous flow of prose was different to the writers before him, which often used and, uh, and you know, continue to use beyond Montaigne, subheadings, classifications, and sections. So this is um, just the, a contents page from Thomas Aquinas' um, Summer Theologica. Which is some, some, summer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Theologica in a bun. I can't remember exactly when it was published, but late 1400, so about 100 a, a years prior to Montaigne. Um, uh, and yeah, you can just sort of see how it works here. Um, it's divided up into, I think it was like 66 qu questions, which is like quite an ominous number now I come to think of, about it for a work on theology. Um, uh, yeah, so it's very strictly divided um, and yeah, quite like a complicated text to read for that reason. Um, so Montaigne's essays break from this. His early essays are largely built from quotations of writers he admired and they remained largely impersonal. Can you get the slide? Um, so this is one of his early essays on, idle, on idleness. Um, this is in book one of the essays. Um, and you see that it's broken up with a lot of quotations. Um, and it, I think I cut off the first page, but it doesn't start in the personal. It only sort of gets into the personal at the end of the essay. And it's just free, like a diary entry. Like yeah. a shitty diary entry. Or this is actually, no, not so much. Like this is more like, this is more like a, he's making annotations. So he's like rereading his library and he's like writing about notes. the books he's reading because he has kind of, a, he says he has a bad memory. So he starts writing about the books he's reading at the end of the books and gradually oh. they take over and become essays of their own. But he starts by just <coughs> really resting heavily on quotations from classical writers that he admires. Um, um, also, we're just kind of remixing what we wrote. We kind of think of a better way to do it. And we did it in Club Theory 1.0, if you read it. And people were like, this is so experimental and amazing. We're like, we just didn't know how to do it together. And we just, yeah, so we're just going in and out of each other. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm not talking so much about... Wait, wait, wait hang on. I, I'm still, still going. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, See, yeah. we really planned it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so this is a later work. Um, this is like his horniest work, um, uh, sort of oddly titled On Some Lines from Virgil, a very inauspicious title, but um, 
Yeah, so you see, so it's from book three, and you see here, I just sort of picked this as a representative. Um, yeah, you see here that the prose is starting to change, that it's starting to get more flowing, like it's using I a lot more. Um, yeah, uh, that was a good bit I wanted to read out. Um, when I picture to myself the most reflective and the most wise of men in such postures, I hold it as an effrontery that he should claim to be reflective and wise like the legs on a peacock. They humble pride. What can stop us telling the truth of the laugh? And of course, he's talking about imagining his idols fucking there. Um, and, he, and in this essay, you should totally read it. It's really funny. He talks about his penis and how it's shriveling up in his old age. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so... So that's just to show you sort of the development of Montaigne's thought over time. Um, and this does relate to the club, <laughs> stay tuned. Um, so, so Sarah mentioned Descartes. Descartes read and was influenced by Montaigne. You could even say that Descartes was a kind of personal essayist. His first meditation begins, as says said, by situating the reader in a particular time and place, the time of Descartes' present. He tells us he's sitting by the fire in his dressing gown, attempting to find a new and properly firm foundation on which to rebuild his knowledge. Like Montaigne, he is an isolated individual confronting a world with a skeptical orientation towards everything. The difference with Montaigne is that he doesn't try to build anything. He stays messy, skeptical even of systems. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, um, so yeah, I'm not, just jumping back to me. Um, obviously that's writing and I'm concepts. Um, so, <laughs> I'm not so much talking about, uh, see, it's interesting. Um, we've swung from a kind of, okay, maybe we're in some kind of polarity at the moment. Uh, we're seeing uh, sort of hippie resistance to labels, like don't label me and don't box me in. Um, on the other hand, a sort of almost manic land grab for ever more nuanced labels. Uh, I won't put any examples there because I'll get even more canceled than I currently am. Um, yeah, and so like, not, but neither of them allow you to be in, uh, yeah, your being state in an animal state. And so, yeah, I touched on it before, so keep going. Uh, when I say animal state, I don't mean like a bestial state. Um, it's not less evolved, uh, but in a sense, it's more evolved uh, to not be in a condition where you're relying on markers of identity uh, and allowing what arises to be to take up your field of consciousness uh, or field of awareness. So in this animal state or this being state, uh, which we all have as a base level, uh, whether or not we're identifying with this or identifying uh, with that or with our thoughts, um, because after all, most of our identity is actually based on thoughts uh, that we identify with. It's not really based on anything else. <laughs> Just imagine a siren going off, like, woo, she's cancelled. Yeah, it's like, um, and if we identify <laughs> with our thoughts, which most people do, um, you lose contact with this preceding animal being state, which I think is closer to the real origin of what it is uh, to be an animal, which we all are. Yeah, so what are you? You're an animal. You're a primate with opposable thumbs and rotating shoulders, and you're more closely related to chimpanzees than chimpanzees are to gorillas. <laughs> um, and there's a clue, actually, in the very word animal. Uh, the word animal is related to the Latin word for spirit. Hmm. Um, so one of the most interesting kind of conjunctions, particularly in the Western tradition, is the idea that your animal state is your spirit state. Uh, so that the earth state is the same as the non-earth state. Uh, and those of you who are more interested in this subject generally uh, might be aware of the fact that even when we talk about our spirit state, or I'm going to make a mystical statement now, brace yourself, uh, the soul state... <laughs> 
the soul nearly always wants to find itself in touch with the body. Uh, so the idea of the soul being somehow separate from the body, um, you know, Descartes is like, what is this thinking thing? It's like separate. Like, yeah, no. It's the spiritual animal state is somehow separate from the body is a later invention in our tradition. Uh, and in fact, uh, at its basis, our animal state or our spiritual state or being state or soul state are exactly the same thing. Uh, actually, one isn't higher than the other. One isn't lower than the other. Both are facets of what it is to be human in a natural state without those accretions of identity uh, that we seek out and grab for. Um, anyway, so having said that, uh, realistically, we can't really do without identities, uh, not least because we live in a world of increasingly technocracy and data. Uh, we know that's the case. Like we all increasingly feel like under the surface, we're all pools of data, like you're a collection of data and this data point. Uh, we all feel that that's happening. Um, but also psychologically, we develop identities partly in order to be able to establish boundaries, in order to know like what's not us and what is us. And that in turn is based on self-protection. Uh, a lot of identity comes about because we need to know what we're not in order to defend ourselves from the things, imagine things, in order to say no. Um, so there's a kind of survival aspect to it uh, and, you know, that goes through our concepts of identity. And, you know, I'm not saying that we need to completely do away with identity altogether. Um, but what I am saying is that we have access as human beings to something far richer, <clears throat> far more opening to other people than we do through identity. It's like so defined. Uh, so what identity does, where although it might give, a, yeah, give you a sense of shape, what you lose with the sense of shape is a sense of openness and openness to the other. This all connects to the clubs somehow. Like um, I'll talk about it later. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll start to finish uh, on this and get to the club. Um, so in a world now which is so consumed with identity, uh, you know, it's no doubt a facet of overpopulation and globalization and nationalisms and tribalisms that go along with that. Blah, blah, blah. Um, it's inevitable in a sense that identity becomes more and more a matter of concern. Uh, so people reach for it with an ever increasing zealousness. That's not a word, like increasing zeal. So they have like this zealous attachment to it. Um, but what we give up in that process are the kinds of deeper ways of connecting with other people, uh, where we become completely aware of other forms of knowing that aren't impeded by our, our identity. So <laughs> if you don't identify, for example, as a Saturday paper reader or a monthly reader um, or an Ikigori reader, um, you're actually going to be much more open to other material that might come up you're going to be less prone to confirmation bias. Uh, and in a more radical way, you're going to be more open to the other. So if you are a Saturday paper reader, you might identify, yeah, you might identify as left liberal or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, the consequence of those identifications is that they're non-hospitable, almost by definition. Uh, so you say, I belong in this tribe. And by belonging in this tribe, you know, like left liberal intellectual or, or whatever it might be, like whatever. Um, I'm also less likely to be welcoming to the other, even if it's a value, particularly of the left-leaning tribe, to espouse the notion of inclusivity and hospitality. Um, so, you know, true hospitality 
uh, or true tolerance of identity involves the ability to welcome like even what's inimical and hostile to you. <laughs> um, so, you know, no matter how closely you identify with your identity, it's essentially a defense position, unless in principle, you're willing to let it be destroyed by the other. Uh, because only when you're allowing your identity to be completely undermined by somebody else or attacked or destroyed, uh, then you're generally in a state of hospitality and openness. Uh, this is why I have white people play my party at Precog. Um, and I've never played a poker only event. Uh, I don't have anything against those events, but it's just, yeah. Um, and I know, yeah, I'm going to be probably hung for saying this. I hope no one's recording it. Preach love. If you preach, yeah, okay. If you preach love and peace um, and true inclusivity at the moment, uh, you'll be burnt at the stake. Um, and if he lived today, Martin Luther King would have been cancelled. Um, that state of hospitality and openness, though, is exactly where the notion of human being begins and ends. Because uh, in that state of openness uh, that precedes identity, uh, you're not trying to defend, you're not trying to secure identity, uh, you're even allowing identities which you might normally denigrate. So I imagine uh, here, like most, yeah, most people are centre-left or centre-left liberal, um, you might subtly denigrate people on the right, um, or not so subtly if you've had the misfortune of getting caught up in a rage algorithm echo chamber. Um, yeah, like we've all been there. Um, or might subtly denigrate people with less progressive values. Um, but unless we allow ourselves to be in a space of proper inclusivity, where we allow our own identity to be removed by the other, or are done by the other, then we're all essentially just building reinforcements. Um, all of which is to say, actually, I just also want to mention that uh, I've been teaching uh, young people who are in custody um, and, you know, I encounter like a lot of, you know, they're really low SES children and there's a lot of homophobia and uh, a lot of like, you know, non-tolerant views that have been handed down to them. And I found out that one child passed away that I was teaching last week and... It just became really present to me how important being is because I'm not judging that child at all. And I don't know why we judge <laughs> adults at the same time. Um, and something that we're taught in our training is unconditional positive regard. Uh, and that really focuses on being rather than anything or any behavior that the child may exhibit. Um, and I guess this is really, you know, what I'm trying to get at the heart of. Uh, I find it really important, yeah. So, yeah, in a sense, identity at the moment, you know, it becomes more and more a matter of concern and, um, yeah, we should be open to the other and open, open to the being and open to change in yourself. <clears throat> so, you know, I'm Sarah, aka Sezo, FKA Kotara, FKA Matariki, like, who cares? Like, just be open to giving up those stories, narratives about yourself or other people, you know, like you do in therapy. Um, uh, illusions, untruths, even you might think is true about yourself. Um, so that a bit of yourself, um, you know, it's also about parts of yourself that you think don't conform to what you think I, your identity is. So it could be your shadow side or your unconscious um, things that are hard to reconcile uh, with a social persona that you project to others or you might wish to be recognised for or applauded for by other people. Um, anyway, that's my two cents worth. 
Um, let's worry less about individual identity and find much more profound ways about rediscovering what being means. Um, and just like as an afternoon, I've got a club thing. Oh, it's at the end. Okay. Oh, yeah, this photo was, did well on Instagram. Um, we were just playing around. So, like, technically any, like, a human activity can be raised to a spiritual level. Um, you know, the good thing about clubbing is that, uh, you know, the environment is really conducive to that. So, you've got, like, hopefully if you've got a good DJ, they're, like, disrupting, disrupting and educating you um, musically. And then, you know, because it's, like, you go in with an identity and people, particularly now, you have these really strong identities. You come in and you try to, like, stunt in everything and... There's all these other things. So this is like the lower level. So it's almost like Maslow, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of um, needs, psychological needs. Yeah. Um, and so at the bottom, you've got like this ego, self-oriented base needs and impulses, um, a Protestant party ethic. I think you added that. <laughs> um, shit, shit clubs like commercial dollars and stuff, um, drugs, yeah, clothes and hot bums and um, yeah, and... Uh, and then, you, you know, so that you've got this really individualized, ego-oriented sense of self when you go in and that's like the lower level of clubbing. And, you know, even this, this occurs at like woke clubs. Like some people like never leave the stage. And then you've got like friends and pashing. And so that's like more relational social, talking about Maslow, the psych psychologist. Um, and then the next level, you have like a sort of creative destruction. So you have this complete like reconfiguring of the space and a sense of self through dance um, and, you know, the dissolution uh, in music that occurs. And at the top, you have enlightenment. And uh, um, that's, you know, when you can, you, you are, there's not like an I that's dancing. It's just like you are, you, you're just a part of the energy. Um, and I don't know if anyone's like done meditation. That's when you see the white light and... Yeah, um, and so you dissolve into the oneness uh, and the oneness is being because, you know, being is what connects us all. Um, and so, yeah, it's this general move from material uh, to spiritual. Um, I think we had like a sort of Marxist base to superstructure going on. Um, but also like I sort of hate hierarchies as well um, because it feeds back down, uh, yeah, there. Um, and that's what it has to do with the club. And that's why I call... Uh, my club night precog, because I'm like really, for a long time, I've been interested in what comes before thought uh, as having some sort of like ontological priority. Anyway, yes, back to Sally. Um, and yeah, I just want to point out, um, as per Club Theory 1.0, which I hope you've all read, um, <laughs> yeah, it goes both ways. So the like, sort of like the transcendence and the base go both ways, like the transcendent sort of layer imbues the material things with this um, sort of abstraction and like spiritualism and the base does the same for the, for the spiritual. Um, uh, but back to the essay, <laughs> you thought you were off the hook, <laughs> but no. So the essay, um, just to recap, has always been personal ever since Montaigne started writing it. Um, and to talk of the essay if it's, as if it suddenly became narcissistic circa 2010s is to pull it from its long history. Um, yeah, I could flag some like counter tendencies here in the essay. Um, maybe I'll just mention um, Paul Preciado, who's 2008 book Testo Junkie. It's a really groundbreaking work um, where he, and he sort of insists that it's not a memoir, it's a body essay, it's a somato political fiction. And he's only interested in his emotions insofar as they're traversed by what isn't his. 
which I feel like connects to the sort of external thought thing that you were getting at. But another way of defining the essay is that it's an attempt to say everything all at the same time, to refuse to subordinate ideas. Writing essays leads to the, to the, to the development of the conspiratorial and paranoid mind. You begin to see connections everywhere. The essay's unsystematic form and its skeptical attitude almost demand it, which the current moment of validated conspiracies is not helping. As Yasarian said in Catch-22, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> For instance, it turns out there really is an international cabal of sex trafficking, tax evading billionaires ruling the world. <laughs> um, so when it comes to the essay and to creative writing in general, I think some paranoia is warranted. You've probably all seen the think pieces about MFA programs producing cookie-cutter writers and sensibilities. Um, texts that all weirdly feel the same. And depending on what you read, this will be described differently. But some general tenets are, I don't know, do people know what I'm talking about with that? Have you sort of read those, like, about the sort of, like, anti-MFA program writing? It's a, it's a writer thing. It's a, but I'll, I'll explain it. it's so it important. <laughs> it is. Mm -hmm. um, it'll become clear. So some general tenets of this kind of writing are a fetishization of technique over content. Um, Alif Batchman put, um, puts it that there's all this great writing trapped in mediocre books. Uh, and she puts that down to writers not being taught anything except how to turn a good phrase and almost expected to remain in a state of perpetual innocence. This fetishization comes with the fear of writing not being a real job because you can teach technique, it's quantifiable, and you can use it to mark student stories and papers. Um, and these texts often follow a singular character who is beautifully realized um, with the narration moving between observations of the external world coupled with psychological insight. Um, sort of the, the kind of hallmark of this writing is the Iowa Writers Workshop. One grad student at the University of Iowa, Eric Bennett, saw this sensibility unfolding in the classroom and he went digging. Um, so if you don't know what Iowa is, Iowa, uh, yeah, most famous writing workshop of its kind. It started in 1933. Um, most subsequent writing workshops are based on it. Creative writing classrooms at Melbourne Uni are based on the workshop model, um, which is kind of uh, about like, you know, you each read each other's work and you like critique it. Um, so uh, the director of the workshop from 1941 to 1965 was Paul Engel. And during his tenure, he deliberately transformed it into a competitor of universities in Russia, which he feared would attract and brainwash foreign students. He wanted to fight the grey blur of totalitarianism with American individualism. Um, through Engel's efforts, Iowa received millions of dollars from conservative businessmen and organisations, including CIA fronts and the Rockefeller Foundation, on the grounds that it would help fight communism. Can you, oh yeah, there he is. Um, yeah, that's Paul Engel. You can see he's this all-American kind of boy. <laughs> And he wrote, you know, he wrote a lot of like nationalist poetry. So Iowa fought this battle ideologically too by encouraging and rewarding a style of writing, the style of writing that I was outlining above, that venerated the particular, the individual, and the situated. This wasn't enforced exactly; it didn't need to be. It was instead produced through a network of influence. And I think if there's anything that creative writing workshops at university are good at, it's reproducing themselves because you have to have a place to employ all the creative writing graduates that you produce. Uh, and I should know because I am one of them uh, and I like teach casually. Um, and I think it's worth asking what values and structures get reproduced along with this. 
So, for example, for several years in the 1950s, Engel edited the O. Henry Award collections, which made and still make writers' careers. Stephen King, Atessa Moshfegh, Raymond Carver, Alice Munro, Fiona McFarlane are all past recipients of the award. The ideology gradually calcified into what is now almost universally accepted writing advice, to start in the concrete and then move into the abstract, this idea that truth can only be reached through in individual experience. And this was, um, so Frank Conroy, another writer and uh, director of Iowa, this was his pyramid, um, his pyramid of literary craft. Um, so yeah, so at the bottom you have the grammar and syntax and then you get a bit higher and you can evoke the senses and then character comes on top. And at the, only at the very top are you allowed to sort of get into the fancy stuff and into symbolism. So the concrete comes first. You'll probably recognize this structure implicitly from your own classes or from reading or writing or even TED Talks, for instance. Um, and you should look up um, Benjamin Braddon's anti-TED Talk TED Talk and Marita Markin's essay against storytelling, um, which sort of break down the narrative structure of these forms really beautifully. Personal essays um, often start with a personal anecdote before moving into more conceptual terrain, so they travel up the pyramid. And the quickest way to make a piece of writing more relatable and entertaining is to ground it in personal and tactile detail. And while we're writing this, we're constantly telling each other to um, you know, provide a concrete example to our abstract theorizing. So when putting together this talk, I read countless essays about the club, countless personal essays. I wanted to test them against the Iowa Illuminati pyramid. <laughs> I wanted to see what happens when this resolutely personal form meets uh, meets the club, meets this culture's engine of collectivity. I found as I read that the essays began to blur into one. Many of them made similar claims. Uh, and you would recognize these two if you've read any. Uh, for the anti-capitalist power of the club, for queer liberation, for a space for marginalized communities to come together, that rave often in some ill-defined way changes the world. You will recognize these claims, I recognize them, I've made some of them myself. Uh, more than this, I noticed that the club essays seem to have a similar structure. That the club essay enlists the arc of the club night to produce a neat narrative of personal redemption set against the backdrop of collective liberation. <laughs> and this arc goes something like getting ready, going out and lining up, arriving, dancing, experiencing the dissolution of the self, returning home exhausted but satisfied. So in the beginning, there's anticipation, scene setting and excitement. Next, the arrival acts like a kind of bridge the clubber gets their bearings. In the climax, the clubber submits to the club experience and the end sees them pulling themselves, the self, together again <laughs> and going home. And to show you what I've made, I've made, I mean, I've made a kind of collage, <laughs> a kind of greatest hits of club essays. Oh, uh, that, that is out of order. Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> and all of these were published in the last few years with the exception of Roland Barthes. <laughs> yeah. who wrote a club essay, by the way. Um, so I'm not going to read this whole thing out, but I'll just point you through it. So this follows the arc that I just outlined. So this is kind of just meant to show you like uh, the kind of modularity of the form. So it starts with a writer um, named Sally Olds. Um, the day of, we wake up already feeling warm ripples in the gut. MDMA dropped in a pond. We do stretches in the lounge room and eat something light, listening to pop music. We drink and that at a point stop drinking. We take a tram and eye others who look like they might be going to the same place. The building towers over us, monolithic concrete and steel, graffiti covering the bottom floors. It's getting on for 3 p.m. 
and there's about a half hour queue leading up to the entrance from Julia Ball. He approaches the bouncers, grins broadly and starts to chat, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then, so that's the opening, and then the bridge, or like the bit where you're getting into it in the club. Roland Bart, <laughs> strange the dark dancers, backlit in the mist that momentarily covers the floor, articulated like puppets under a ceiling of red and green rays. Strange the revolving mirror, strange the sooty helenoid frescoes that run like a slightly dated chastity along the upper walls. Um, and then you get to the climax, the dissolution, the moment of partying fully. My, oles, my eyes rolled back involuntarily, the distorted kick drum throbbed through my chest, the bass reverberated through my limbs, and my shoulders suddenly do gong, 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 gong. Uh, strangers moved in sync, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then you often get some kind of loose claim uh, about the revolutionary power of the club, and representative here is an essay from Alexandra Honey. Um, where they talk about catching a glimpse behind the banal rationality that dominates modern life, revealing the transience and plasticity of reality. It's all of us. <laughs> and then dawn breaks onto a cloudless sky. We wake up next to each other. Um, and outside it's raining. Um, the wet streets and empty urban slick. Uh, all that night and for a long time afterwards, my head is full of echoes, flashes of light and colour, touch and the persistent rhythm of the machines beeping like life support. So, I don't want to diminish these essays, which are much more complicated than I'm letting them be here. And of course, plenty of writing on clubbing tries to replicate the chaos of the club night. The sentences and paragraphs become increasingly fragmented during the climactic scenes of dissolution. I'm talking here particularly about narrative personal essays where the sentiment and the structure of the essay follows a dependable shape, where the writer reaches transcendence by first passing through the concrete, and where the sentiment and structure is modular and somewhat interchangeable. So whether you believe that Iowa was a Cold War conspiracy against abstraction and universals or not, I think there's something going on here, something worth paying attention to. Uh, the irony of Paul Engels' attempts to fight communism and promote an individualism ironically led to the homogenous form of the MFA writing. Likewise, the attempts to remain in the individual and the particular seems to lead, in the essay, to the same sentiments being expressed over and over again in a similar order, a similar shape. The most personal essays become generic, and in this maybe the club achieves its goal of unity. Thank you. Thanks, thanks everyone for coming. Okay, we've actually run out of time for a Q&A, but what we're going to do is the bar is open and we can have drinks and chat. And I think that's probably a more formal, better vibe yeah, way to do Does this. Does anyone have any burning But if you questions? have any burning questions and you really want to like, yeah. About concepts or writing? I have a lot of questions about ontologies, but we can talk about that later. So sorry. Okay. <laughs> I love Sally. Also, just a plug, we've got another talk coming up next week on Thursday, 5th of December at 6pm at RMIT Gallery, and it's Queenie Bonbon, who is fucking incredible, and she's our last for the year, so worth seeing. Um, get a drink now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.